Welcome to Count Four and You're In, a father and son podcast, where Harley Rodica chats to his dad, professional New Zealand drummer Marcel Rodica, delving deep into his history and journey into the heart of the Australasian music industry, taking on the world with New Zealand band Mother Goose and his survival as a working drummer today. Today we're chatting to Dad's great friend and Mother Goose guitarist, Pete Dixon, all the way from his home on the Gold Coast. Pete, how you going, mate? Mate, how are you? Good, good. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast today. And uh, recently we've spoken a lot about Mother Goose over the last few episodes. We'll get your thoughts and experiences on that. But first of all, I just want to start with how you got into playing music. I went to a end-of-the-year Christmas concert in Dunedin, and, and I saw someone playing a ukulele. I thought, oh, I've got to play one of those. <laughs> nice. And uh, that was it. So I got, I got a ukulele. So how old would you have been? Oh, seven, eight. And then so when did you upgrade to playing guitar? Have you always played guitar? No. I was uh, the bass player for, for a little while. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I got involved with um, the rabbit, Paul and Tony Rabbit. And I started playing bass, and then Mrs. Rabbit actually rang my mother and asked if I could join the in-betweens. <laughs> and, uh, of course, my mother said, no way, no way, he's going to stay at school, blah, blah, blah. And I hated it for ages after that. Yeah. But then I moved on to guitar because I realised guitar was much more fun. Did you get guitar lessons, or did you teach yourself? Taught myself. Because I play upside down... It was kind of difficult. I just kept on pushing and pushing and pushing. It took me to force myself to learn the way I play. So how come you played the guitar upside down? Well, sitting around with a bunch of friends playing acoustic guitars, I was just watching them and went, oh. And I just picked the guitar up and just sort of did a mirror image of what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, left-handed without changing the strings over. Initially, I was playing right-handed guitars upside down. And then one day I managed to get hold of this Jensen guitar, which was left-handed, which I strung around the other way too. And that was my sort of favourite for a little while. And then finally moved on to uh, Gibson yeah. SG, which was easy to play because they're a double-cut guitar and you can play them upside down without too many problems. Did you have any idols or bands that you be like when you were younger? Yeah, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Initially, I mean, guitar players like Jeff Beck and you know, Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix, Mick Ronson. I think Mick Ronson... When I started you know, following Bowie, it was a big influence on my guitar player. So when, when did you get into your first band? Uh, this band, I think it was at Tahuna or Musselburgh, I can't remember. It might have been Tahuna, it was called Royal Blue. And uh, it was me, probably remember Alistair Calvert, he was in it. A guy called Alan Walton and John Roberts. Just guys around the neighbourhood. We did one dance at St Kilda, something like a Bible class hall yeah. or something. And we were supporting the in-betweens. Yeah, those Bible class dances and Dad talked about back in the day. Speaking of Dad, when was the first time you met Marcel? That would have been when I got back from Auckland in 73. We were putting Argus together and Chris decided that Marcel's the right drummer for the band and we'd better get him. So that was it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did you find the whole Argus experience? Oh, it was fantastic. It was like the first real band. I think we all were in, you know, it's like we sort of potted around with different bits and pieces and then Argus came together. It was like, oh, this is it. Can I just butt in there? Dennis, our bass player, obviously, recalls you coming from Auckland and at our first practice, 
saying to us, you guys, you got to play tight. And the concept of playing tight together as musicians hadn't really sunk in with us yet. But Dennis always attributes that to you, Pete, and saying, come on, you guys, we've got to up the ante here. We've got to be a tight unit. Ever since then, I think that just became a way of thinking and a way of playing. I think that was probably one of the things I learned while I was in Auckland. I was playing with Kevin Standen from ISEX and a band called Transformer in Auckland. And that was the big thing between us, you know, getting tight and having good harmonies, which is another thing we worked on really hard with Argus. Yes, we did. Vocals. Nice. So as you know, Dad was a little Catholic boy, right? Very straight-laced. So Dad told us a story about how he had to borrow some of your clothes to look a bit more like a rock star. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, I had quite a lot of those because my girlfriend at the time used to make them for me. I had all the latest looking, you know, rock and roll clothes, you know, like sack velvet and all sorts of Uh, it's funny, actually, when, when it came time to do the first Argus gig, it was, everybody turned up completely different from what they looked like at rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> I remember bothering your clothes and feeling very cool in your clothes, Pete. Yeah, I'm going to look good too. Absolutely. Well, you brought that to us, though, because you came from Auckland and it was just a big deal, you know. So I will say that I have forever since those days been more conscious about my clothes that I wear. Have you? Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. And I think that obviously carried through into the Mother Goose era as well, you know. Clothes were kind of, they became kind of important on and off the stage. Would you agree? I agree, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, well they things changed changed quite dramatically when we went on to Mother Goose. <laughs> Indeed. So joining Mother Goose, um, what was that like? I was in Christchurch playing with Fair Club with the Hudson Brothers. And um, I came back to the Dunedin, and Chris was playing in a band called Beagles with Craig. He said, oh, you're going to come to the show tonight. And that show that night was them supporting the LO at the um, Regent Theatre. And they came on and they did a mime. And I thought, oh, this is really good. They put on a good show. And, and then I spoke to Craig afterwards, and he said, oh, we want to put a new band together. Uh, would you be interested? And I said, yeah. And I thought at the time Chris was going to be involved as well. As it turned out, he decided he didn't want to do it. And then uh, Dwarf came along. And Dennis and Mars came along and off we went. Yeah, nice. What were your feelings and ambitions about Mother Goose? I felt like this was going to do something straight away. Yeah. You know, the whole idea of it, the theatrical side of it, putting on a show, you know, entertaining people it would work. And, it, you know, as it turns out, it did. <laughs> what were your experiences like touring the country for the first time? It was actually amazing because every, every, everywhere we played, it was like people went, oh, these guys are amazing. And of course, it, it might not have been many people on the first night, but the second night was always packed. And then the motor just kept running as, as the further north where you went, people sort of heard about us. Eventually, you guys decided to head over to Australia, toured Australia, and you set yourself up in Gold Coast? It was actually Brisbane first. Yeah. We're in Brisbane, living in a suburb called Fairfield. And we played around Brisbane for a while, and we used to play the Gold Coast on Sundays. Every Sunday, we played the playroom. And then when we went to Perth, uh, we came back to do New Year's Eve on the Gold Coast, and that's when we stayed on the Gold Coast. So that's when Craig got chickenpox. That's right. And so we had about three weeks off surfing and having a hell of a good time while Craig was on his death door. (laughs) Horrible. (laughs) He was on his death door, and he was not having fun at all, was he? He no. wasn't enjoying that at all. No. 
Yeah, but the rest of us, you were right. We were, we were out partying and we were going here and there, and we had a fun break in that time. You're listening to Count Four and you're in. You guys did a lot of travel, a lot of traveling, a lot of driving. Did you ever get sick of it? Yeah, you find yourself sitting in the back of the car going, oh, God, I wish I could go home one day. And then realize that you haven't got one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I have these memories, Pete, of you're in the back of the car and you're in the middle of nowhere and you see a sign and it says 450 k's to Melbourne and you think to yourself, oh, God, that's not far. We'll be home soon. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like 450 k's. It's a long way. And we used to think, oh, we'd be home soon. It's not that bad, you know, considering we've just driven previous 500. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you get you get north of Brisbane and you go, hmm, 2,300 kilometres to Cairns. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Where's the next roadhouse? So, you know, we're constantly thinking of ways to entertain ourselves on those long drives. So all sorts of shit went down. Unbelievable. Yeah, so what did you do to entertain yourself then? Give us a few insights. Oh, we did all sorts of mad things. Huh? You know, we'd pull into a roadhouse and all buy um, sailor's hats. <laughs> and, and everybody had to wear a sailor's hat. You know, it was right. all compulsory. Really. Sometimes there was um, drinking in the back, but the driver always seemed to be sober, didn't they? No, no the driver never drank. No, that's right. No, you know, things like Craig had this amazing ability of pouring drinks while the car was you know, flat out going down the highway <laughs> without spilling a drop. And I used to go, this is incredible. How did he do this? <laughs> we used to make all sorts of concoctions like what was the goose juice? Scotch, Tia Maria and milk. Oh, God. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, Something terrible. But- there was a period there where Scotch, Tia Maria and milk was the poolside cocktail at different motels mm. we used to stay at. That was Craig's forte. You know, on one of the tours we were on, Craig got the flu or something, so he decided that he had to have port. So that the whole tour was called a port and a storm tour. That's right. <laughs> Any port and a storm tour. I remember pulling into some bottle shop in the middle of nowhere somewhere, and we went in and um, said to buy some port, and they had a couple of really nice bottles and a 90-cent bottle of port. So <laughs> we were all back in the car. And we're drinking away, and Chris Kidd, the keyboard player, was asleep in the bag, and he wakes up and goes, give me a port now. So we say, yeah, this, this is amazing. It's the best port in the world. And 90 cent, that was vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Because she's going, oh, this is great. Yeah, we played a few tricks on each other along the way. Yes, we did. With all the touring around the country, that's a lot of gigs. Do you have any that stand out in your mind that have been really good or some that were really bad? Well, I don't think we call any bad ones. There's so many really, really good ones. I mean, the gigs we used to do at the State of the Play, where we, we held the record as the, having the biggest crowd mm. right until the end of the until they pulled it down and turned it into a parking lot. And the Bondi Lifesaver, that was a really good memory. That's yeah. gone too. We did some huge gigs. You know, they were just pretty amazing. To single them out to be very hard. You guys actually recorded your first album, Stuffed, in Australia. Now, I just want to know for you what it was like being in a recording studio for the first time. Oh, it's just amazing. I loved it every minute of it. We were allowed to have anything we wanted to record with. So, you know, I had like just heaps of gear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trying to get whatever sound I was chasing. I remember Michael Gidinski coming to the studio and goes, because we, we were all using Ampeg gear at the time, and um, he comes in and goes, why haven't you got a Marshall? Where's the Marshall? I go, oh, well, we've got Ampeg. No, oh, you're going to have a Marshall. Okay, get me a, get me a Marshall. Next thing you know, two Marshall stacks turn up on top of the Ampeg gear. 
Really? It's just ridiculous. <laughs> Did you have much of a say in writing of the songs? Yep. The first album I did, I was pretty much involved with all of them. And it wasn't until we got to the States, Craig and Steve, I was supposed to be involved with writing the, most of the songs for the second album, which ended up just basically being Craig and Steve in, in his bedroom around the piano. Like, you know, I'm going, oh, I'm not sure about these songs. Mm, yeah. So I ended up tossing some ideas around with Mast and um, Dan and Mike, and we had a little two-track recorder in the closet. I remember going in there and Master was hitting uh, cardboard boxes and stuff. and It was just hilarious. Yeah. So we came up with a few ideas. But I sort of lost the vibe as far as the, the, the new songs that were coming out. Going, hang on a minute, this isn't rock. This isn't rock. So just going back to the Stuffed album, what are your thoughts on some of the songs? Did you have any favourite? Yeah, I like most of them. Mm. Most of the songs on that, on that album. Because I think we're at our peak of creativity as far as being musicians go. We were experimenting, doing all sorts of weird stuff, and and I, I guess we we're influenced by you know English bands like Genesis and Ten CC and mm. Supertramp and all those sorts of bands. So we wanted to be as you know as creative as, as they were. Yeah, and we we definitely put a, a lot of work into you know the arrangements of those songs. We pushed the envelope as much as we could to our best of our ability at the time. I agree with you there, Pete. That's a good way to put it. The height of our creativity. It was the culmination of that album, really, wasn't it? I agree with that because after that, you're right, the songwriting changed and we kind of adapted and rolled with it, you and I, you, me and Dennis and Dwarf, obviously, to a degree too. We kind of rolled with what Steve and Craig were coming up with. But that height of togetherness creativity wasn't really ever the same, was it, since then? Yeah, that's sort of, that's, course, end of that American tour, I went, uh, I want to do something else now. And to be honest, I'm not blaming Craig and Steve for that. I'm not, and, and I mean that, I'm not kind of blaming them for that. It's just that that's the way things rolled. They took a bit more control of the songwriting, and I guess in many ways we had less of a say. Well, I mean, they, well, that's what happened, but, but I was starting to feel like I, my input wasn't really doing anything. It was like the first album, I had a lot to do with all the guitar parts and I made sure that the guitar parts are pretty rocking and everything. And um, there's, there's new songs that are coming along. It's like, mm, what are you doing this? Play a couple of chords and, you know. There wasn't really room for lead guitar playing. And the writing had changed too, Pete. The, the writing style had changed. I mean, Fairy Tales does have some rock tracks on it, but you could tell the writing was already beginning to change, looking, yeah. for, looking for something a bit more commercial in some areas, you know, and... Yeah, it had just it had just changed. So I'm just going to quickly jump back, and um, I just want to get your thoughts on baked beans. Right. Well, <laughs> um, now, you know, when we were putting Mother Goose together, and I was sharing a house with Craig down in Castle Street, across the road from the Gardener's Tavern or the old Gardener's Tavern. Yeah, so they were poor, and uh, <laughs> baked beans were on the menu practically every day. <laughs> You know, as we hit the road and we got sillier and sillier, that song just appeared. I think, you know, it's, it's a silly thing to do. It's a fun thing to do, you know. And, um, of course, you know, theatrically it was a good song to work with on stage. So it just became a mainstay of the set. And my name, we thought, well, we ought to record it because everybody loves it. So, you know, we'll record it and release it and off we go. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> and actually in New Zealand first, where we recorded it at EMI Studios in Wellington. 
then we did it on television and next thing you know we were rock stars the next day yeah well it kind of took off for you didn't it certainly did i remember the night before it was about to be released in australia craig and i sat with each other and we went yeah we could stop this if we want to and once this comes out that's it you know we're going to be pigeonholed and we both looked at each other and went oh yeah let's do it anyway okay (laughs) (laughs) i never knew that but that's good good on you for doing that and as it turned out, since we did Countdown, it was like we were a household name. Keep listening to Count Four and you're in. Back chatting to Dad's great friend and Mother Goose guitarist, Peter Dixon. So I just want to ask you what your experiences were like moving to America and, and how you felt when you got there and what you were sort of expecting to come from it. Um, well, I have to say it was probably the most exciting time of my life, really. Though when we flew into L.A., it was overcast and, and smogging. And we were coming down through that. And I'm going, my God, this is what LA is all about. Smog. All the stories I've heard are true. And it's just covered in smog. But, you know, as it turned out, we were living in a huge, great house in the Hollywood Hills and we all had a ball. Many did a couple of gigs in LA, but most of the time we were recording, uh, which was really good because the record company had a studio that we could go down to any time and just blow, you know, which Dennis Mars and I used to go down and just, you know, just jam for hours. Did you find it hard not? having many gigs to play because Mother Goose was sort of based on that live show. Yeah, yeah. That all came to a crashing end, though. So as we went to New York, it was back to, you know, back to work, played all over the place. Dad mentioned a gig in LA, I think, called the Showcase Gig, which was in front of a lot of corporate uh, industry people, and um, they actually rented a crowd for you. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was one of those full-on, you know, Hollywood showcase deals that, you get up to get the renter crowd, and plus all the music industry people were there. And we put on this massive show, <laughs> sort of kind of show we'd be playing to say, you know, 3,000 people or something. And we had the same sort of PA and stage gear and everything. You know, we had double Marshall stacks and double Ampeg stacks and just tons of stage gear. We turned on a pretty amazing show. It's just that the, the people at the show just have never clue what we're on about. No, that's exactly right. And for that reason, I really hated the gig. I remember the show quite well. The band was really good, but the atmosphere and the non-reaction of the people stunned mullets look on their faces. I mean, I just didn't enjoy that gig <laughs> one bit. I mentioned earlier that um, it was the only gig in our whole career that I really just wanted to get the hell off there. And get out of there. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a nerve wracking experience. It was. So, how did you find working with the record company over there? <laughs> yeah. Frightening. Although before we went to LA, they came with us for the contracts. Okay, sign this, and we'll get on with it. And because the contract said you get one percent, and we all went, oh, one percent. Um, I'm not sure we can sign this. Yeah. And but it, you know, I just thought at the time, let's just sign it. We get successful, just renegotiate. That's what, that's what I thought. Yeah. But um, Stephen Craig, went, no, 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 not do this. Everybody in the truck, we're off to New York and slog it out again, you know, just go back to what we knew is you know, playing live and picking up crowds and mm. hopefully someone will go, okay, sign this. Did you enjoy living in New York? Yeah, I had some good times, but as it went into the New York winter, it started to be started going, oh, my being back on the Gold Coast now. <laughs> <laughs> Getting a bit too cold for you. Oh, it's unbelievably cold. Yeah, you know. But I have to say, we did have a first white, well, my first white Christmas. It actually snowed on Christmas Day. Yeah, cool. So you obviously got to the point where 
you weren't really happy with the way the band was going, so you actually decided to leave the band. Yeah, I decided it was you know had enough. I couldn't see the future for me as a guitar player. Was it a bit emotional for for everyone, or did it sort of shock the band in a way, or? Initially, but I wasn't getting on with Steve at all by the stage, you know, yeah. what we were doing and everything. So it was getting a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. I just thought it'd be better than I headed back. It wasn't an easy decision. And it was like right up to the last minute, I'm going, am I doing the right thing here? These guys are all like brothers to me, you know. Yeah. So it was, it was really hard. So what did you do after leaving Mother Goose? So you did say you went back to New Zealand, was it? And you started another band yeah no i went back to the need and you know, potted around there for a while and then back to melbourne yeah and i was playing with jim taylor for a while we had a little thing going which sort of petered out after about six months I think. and then i just carried on writing and doing demos around melbourne and you know just did a couple of gigs here and there with the different people and then i came back to the need again and chris and i put a landing party together which um went really well from when we first started in Dunedin. And we were going to actually stay in New Zealand. Then I got the call to come to Perth. And so we flew, we flew to Perth and played around Perth for about two years or less, maybe. And then I rejoined Mother Goose. Nice. <laughs> and what year was that, roughly, rejoining Mother Goose? 82, I think. End of 82. Who gave you the call to join Mother Goose again? And how did you feel about that? Craig rang up because Steve had left the band the year before and they had the new keyboard player, Neil Shookin. And um, then Justin decided he wanted to go back to America. So at the end of that particular tour. So Craig Remy said, um, we're coming back to Perth and uh, Just is leaving. Do you, would you be interested in coming back to the band? I went, yeah, I think I would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was it. So they got back, we started rehearsing and off we went again. You're listening to Count Four and you're in. So what have you done since Mother Goose? And what are you doing now? Right. Well, uh, when Mother Goose finished, we put a band together called Sport of Kings, which is an original band. It was just me and Mars and Craig and a couple of other guys. And wrote a whole bunch of new songs and got it together and did a few shows. And then we ended up supporting Queen. I think that was the biggest thing we did, which with Freddie Mercury. So that was a fantastic event for us. And at the same time, we had another band called The Incredible Penguins, which somehow overtook Disported Kings, because we ended up doing a single War Is Over, which is a John Lennon song, Merry Christmas War Is Over, oh, yeah. which went charging up the charts, and next thing you know, we were back. You know, we were back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, that, that kept on. The Incredible Kings was just a, like a Melbourne party boys kind of a band, because we had lots of different guests. Everybody from Steve Gilpin to Mark Hunter left us now, but they all came and sang with the band. That band was designed for that kind of vibe. Mm. And eventually we that came to an end and I moved to Darwin. Right up the top of Australia, right? Yep. Yeah. When I moved up there, a friend of mine was involved in opening a nightclub up there and um, he put a band together as a resident band up there and he asked if I'd like to come up and do it. And um, I thought, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, something different. And at the time, the Timor War was on, so the whole of Darwin was just packed with soldiers, you know, military people. So it was just amazing. Every night was the gig was packed and it was wonderful. We had all sorts of guests coming up and singing with us. That was a good time. I ended up being there for about six years. And while I was playing doing a few gigs during the week, I was also teaching swimming and being a lifeguard, my other career. <laughs> then my kids had moved to the Gold Coast, so I thought, you know, I'd better get down there and be with them, you know, or be yeah. close to them. They breaking up with their mother. So I moved down here and started working for the Musicians Pro Shop here on the coast and um, – 
been with the pro shop now it's gold coast music since then so it's been like 15 years wow and you're still enjoying it yeah yeah it's, i still enjoy you know dealing with customers and stuff and yeah showing all the new products that are coming on the market but also i've got a new original band called magpies attack and we've got two songs out now go to youtube and check out magpies attack a song called love my life and the other one's called humans alive yeah there'll be another one out sometime this year and that's basically what i've been doing been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and um i personally want to thank you for always being such a good friend to my dad over the years but also to my mum yeah it's just really important that they've had you in their lives oh it's very very kind of you to say so and these marshmallows have been very, very close to me. They're like my brother and sister. That's good to hear. We know that. Hey, listen, um, it's just been wonderful having you on our podcast. You were able to give your side of the story, you know. I mean, we've been talking about my side of life, but it's been great to get your angle on it, your spin on it as well. We shared so much together. So we've had Dennis on as well. Dennis came in for a session and he again gave us his angle on. So um, I just wanted to say thanks and um it's always a pleasure talking to you, and I can't wait till we can get together again, maybe back in Dunedin, and we can get the Argus machine going again and go and crank some noise and make a racket together in some <laughs> venue. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I'll be looking forward to that. You've been listening to Count Four and You're In, a father and son podcast where Harley Roddicker chats to his dad, professional New Zealand drummer Marcel Roddicker. Listen out for the next episode. This podcast series is engineered and produced by Barry McConaughey in Dunedin, New Zealand.